you can go ahead and take a seat. And what, what a sweet Jesus we serve. Is that right? Hey, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. Uh, we were there on last week, and uh, we'll jump back in uh, just a little bit earlier in that book than we were last week. We were in chapter 5. Today we're going to jump back to chapter 4 and pick up an idea that really helps us understand more about chapter 5. And I told you on last week it would be great if we had weeks that we could spend um, walking through this book to understand all that God is uh, saying to his church through it. But uh, we, will, we will camp out in chapter 4 today. Let me just take a moment and say if you are here for the first time perhaps today, we have been on a journey as a church for uh, almost 17 years. Many of us were not here way back then, but nonetheless, the journey continued, and that journey was centered on uh, transitioning the church or relocating our church from the downtown area of Daytona to uh, a beautiful piece of property that is adjacent to our runs along Interstate 4 that's just about a mile from here. It's 230 acres of incredible Florida land, and we are in the really the final steps of getting ready to put up a permanent structure, a building on that, and begin to develop that property. And uh, that's what, again, our meeting is about later today. We encourage you to stick around so that you can hear the details regarding the next step. But it's, it's, it's imminent that um, the, the building will, will begin, the construction will begin. Uh, many things are happening already. Uh, let me give you a cool thing you can do today. Seth Carlton, who's here, he's actually making pancakes right now. But he also works for the contractor. And so if you just want to pump in for information today, it would be great if we could just all line up and one at a time talk to Seth. He'd be like question after question after question. So you, he could kind of tell you exactly um, where we are. So that's all exciting. And you'll hear more uh, after the worship time today. So Galatians chapter 4. And what I need to do is kind of recap a little bit about what we talked about last week. Last Sunday was the day that we celebrated Independence Day. We observed that as a church family, the fact that we are a free nation. And we um, catapulted off of that to talk about not only are we free as a people in America, but we're also free in Christ. And Paul tells us in uh, Galatians 5 and 1 that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he encourages, urges, cautions the church that are the recipients of the letter not to fall back into the yoke of slavery. Here's what had happened. This was a region of Galatia where there were several churches that would be the recipients of this letter. It was a circular letter, meaning it would start in one place and be passed along from church to church until everyone had had a chance to read the things that Paul had written. And so as the letter would go from place to place... And um, th what prompted the letter was some people that had entered into the fellowships of the churches, and they began to teach some things that would, they were tempting to add to the gospel. And Paul says, if you add anything to the gospel, you're actually subtracting from the gospel. If you don't understand that you do nothing to earn your salvation, if you try to then begin to earn your salvation, then you've lost sight of the fact that it's all by grace that we are forgiven that it's a free gift that we receive. And so some people had entered into the churches and began to teach that not only did you need to come to Christ and be a Christian, but you also must live like a Jewish person. You must not only become a follower of Jesus, but you also must live as a Jew. 
And what kind of boiled out of that, or, or, or you distill it all down, they really just became a, a group of legalists, where they were attempting salvation by their behavior and by um, modifying their behavior and conforming their morality to a set of rules that would be handed down to them by someone. And Paul is saying, that is not how you began this walk. You began this walk in the Spirit by faith, and that's how you began, and that's how you will continue. And so he says, Christ has set you free. And he goes on talking about how we are to really guard our freedom. We're to stand firm, he tells us in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. We're to stand firm and not submit to a yoke of slavery again. And so we talked about the fact that we're free. And today I want to talk about our positional uh, transition that makes us free. I want to talk to you today about what it is that God has done on our behalf, what he has done for us to give us a positional standing before him whereby we are free to be who he has called us to be. So in Galatians 4, it picks up a thought that has begun earlier than verse 1, and so it kind of begins abruptly, but that's where we're going to start. And, and so Paul is explaining something he said just prior at the end of chapter 3. In fact, I'll just go back and read um, verse 25, starting in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor there is uh, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. And now he's going to offer some explanation a little deeper um, to explain what he means by being an heir. So I mean that the heir, he says, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, and born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Just a little bit further. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Verse 9 now. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? A couple of things I want you to do. If you have a pen, or you can just remember this, I want you to circle some words. The first word that I want you to circle is the word redeem. That's down in verse 5. And then I want you to circle in verse 6, or, or actually in the verse 5, circle the word adoption. So several things have happened in this passage that Paul is going to help us understand. First of all, um, we have been redeemed... And what does that mean? And uh, second of all, we have been adopted. And what does that mean? It's profound. The next thing I want you to do is circle the word uh, sons. So we've been adopted as sons. 
And if you read this passage and you're female in the room, you think, well, what about me? I'm not a son. Well, in fact, you are a son in the sense that Paul is using the word. It could have been very easy for Paul to say, um, you are adopted as sons and daughters. But there was a particular time in which Paul was writing. In the first century, when the recipients of the letter would have first read it, uh, the daughter had no legal right to uh, become an heir, a recipient of what the family had. And so Paul is, is clarifying something that he mentioned in verse 28. He says, in Christ, again, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, then heirs according to the promise. So everyone who is in Christ, Paul is saying, has a legal standing before God as an heir, as a recipient one day of an inheritance that will be ours. Isn't that great? So when you read the passage and you come across the word sons, you're included in that as well, ladies. I hope that helps you. So Paul says you've been redeemed, you've been adopted as sons. So let's begin to walk through, starting back in verse 1. Um, in, in the first century, again, when a child w- who would be the rightful heir to an inheritance that was going to be handed down by the family, by the father particularly, that child would be, um, as a little child, would be placed under the care and the direction of a tutor that would train that child in how um, he ought to live. And when the, the age of 14 came about, that child would, had, had come of age, and so his training would transition from that of being under a tutor uh, who would be giving him education to that of a manager. So he would begin to get maybe a little more responsibility with regard to the inheritance, and that would continue until such time that the recipient or the heir became age 25. And at age 25, he had come of age fully, and then he could receive all that was rightfully his. He was able to do so when the time came that his father passed and the inheritance passed down. So when Paul is writing, he's saying several things in verse 1. He says that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. In other words, he has no no ability to get or or access to um, what he is to receive. Though he is owner of everything, though it's his, he is the heir to the inheritance He is not going to get it because he is a child. He has not yet come of age. But verse 2 tells us he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, until such time that he had come of age as, as the custom was in that day, age 25. And so here's what is meant by all of that. Remember that he is writing to a group of people that have encountered a a set of teaching, a body of teaching, that said, not only must you come to Christ, but you must also uh, live out the Jewish custom, follow all of the laws, do everything, obey perfectly, and you will earn, based on your behavior, you will earn favor with God. And so Paul is saying several things that you have to understand. Verse 1, first of all, when referring to um, this idea of an heir being like a slave when he's a child, it's an incomplete understanding of what it is that he had received. The child doesn't yet know, as a child, what he has received 
But when he comes of age, and you know this, when you come of age, you begin to think as an adult, and you have a different appreciation, a different awareness for what it is that you received. Now take a moment and flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's a, and Hebrews is written to people, to, uh, to Jewish people, to talk about the fact that Christ is supreme, and that all of the law, and all of the sacrificial system, and everything that was given to the Jewish people was a type of, of and pointing to the coming of Christ. So Hebrews chapter 10 um, helps, understand, helps us understand what Paul is saying in Galatians 4, 1. 10, chapter 10, Hebrews, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written me in the scroll of the book. So Paul is our, many would say Paul is writing in Hebrews. But, but Hebrews is telling us that all of the law pointed to the fact that they must continue doing what they just did the year before. There was no way by the law and the sacrificial system that forgiveness could be once and for all made. And so it was an incomplete understanding. So Paul is saying to the Galatians, although uh, the Jewish people were a people, uh, they were to receive. They had a promise of, of spiritual freedom. They were, in fact, those still in bondage because they did not understand fully what the promises pointed to. It's an idea that Peter picks up as well and says that, that the prophets searched intently to find out what it is that they were even talking about. And they understood that they were serving future generations and the thing that they were, things that they were writing rather than themselves. And so, first of all, Paul is saying that when you're a child and you've not come of age, um, even though you are an heir, you are um, just as a slave because he's under guardians and managers until he comes of age. Now that picks up an idea that we have to go just a little bit earlier um, in chapter 3, near the end of chapter 3, in verse 23. It says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So now the idea is this, that as... as um, as the child would be placed under guardians, so were we, and so were the Jewish people placed under the tutelage, if you will, of the law, to point them to the fact that they could not, they could not perfectly obey God. It was intricately described how a person ought to be holy, and time and again, people failed, and so continually and annually, they were making sacrifices for their sins. Once and for all, though Christ did that on our behalf. And so we were under guardians. So that was the, that was the Jewish people understanding. Now, verse 3 kind of um, 
also includes we who were Gentiles. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that's something that he will explain just a little bit more beginning in verse 8. But it begs the question, what in the world are these elementary principles that he's talking about? And here's the basis of it all. No matter what system that you, religious system that a person might ascribe to, in the end, every one of those is an effort to save one's self. Whether I ascribe to the Muslim faith and try to please Allah who is no God, by my actions, or whether I, as the Galatians would have done, being uh, in a Greek culture, if they would have tried to appease all of the various pantheon of gods that were, were, were supposedly uh, existing, whether they were trying to do all the things, it was all an attempt to save oneself. We mentioned last week that oftentimes we reduce the fact that, that we are Christians. We sometimes forget that Christ has done it all for us, and we try to replace our obedience to him and living in grace with performance-based system where we come to church, we read our Bible, we work our checklist hoping that somehow we will be accepted by God. That is the elementary principle of this world, that we can somehow save ourselves. And Paul is saying that's how we used to be. That's how we used to think. We were enslaved to this way of thinking that we could somehow uh, earn our way to be right with God. However, verse, verse 4 tells us, but, and it's always great when there's a thought that's going, and you're like, I don't really like this thought. I don't like this thought. And then the word but comes along. Verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God did something for us that we could really have never imagined. He sent forth his son. And he sent forth his son in a particular way. One, it says that he was born of a woman. That means he was fully a man. That God the Son became flesh and blood. It says that he was born under the law. As a human, as a man, he was to be perfectly obedient to the Father as well. Only Jesus, though, could do just that. And so it says that... Um, he was born under the law to redeem, that was the first word we circled, to redeem those who were under the law. So Christ came to do something for us. We have to back up just a little bit into chapter 3, a little bit earlier still, and it says, beginning in verse uh, 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Remember, that's last week in chapter 5, Paul was saying, if you say you must be circumcised, that was the big issue that had, had risen to the top. If you say that you must obey God and be circumcised for salvation, not only must you be circumcised, but you must obey completely everything. And so Paul is, is highlighting something that is told to God's people in the book of Deuteronomy, that if, unless you perfectly obey every single law, you are cursed. And so it is now evident that no one is justified. This is verse 11, chapter 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for it says the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So do you see, he has told us something profound about our existence. That if we don't perfectly obey every law, we are cursed. Knowing full well that we could never do that, God did something for us and sent his son to become accursed for us. In other words, he perfectly obeyed, first of all, and then he died what would be our death so that we might live what would be his life. So back to, yeah, absolutely, thank you, Paul. He says, thank you, Jesus. So back to verse 4 in chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Profound word. And to understand the word, redeem, it really means to purchase, out of. It's to buy back. And so Paul is saying that we who were under, uh, are, are under the law, we were a slave to the law, and uh, having to perfectly obey, and we could not do so, so we were accursed, and so Christ became uh, a curse for us, and he died on the cross in our place, so that we might receive the promised spirit of faith. Going on, verse 23 in chapter 3 says that, now when faith come, we who were imprisoned, um, we were imprisoned until faith would be revealed. And so he says that God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law. When we were slaves, Jesus purchased us out of our slavery. And oftentimes that's where we stop. And oftentimes that is where we slip into works-based salvation. That's where we slide into a morality-based religion. We slip off into performance and behavior and keeping lists and comparing ourselves to others and never feeling like we measure up and always being anxious about our position before God and wondering if somehow one day he's going to see all that I've done and he's going to let me in. And it leads us to ask the question of people, and if you ask this question of people, um, don't be mad at me, but we ask the question of people, if you stand at the gate and God says, why should I let you into heaven? It leads people to think that you're going to have to somehow give a list of behaviors. Even the fact of believing in Jesus is really not a, suffi it's a sufficient reason, but God's never going to ask us that question because he knows who are his. You understand that? And so what we're leading people to do is to somehow find just the right behavior that I've done by believing just enough because they stop short of the rest of the gospel and they realize they've been redeemed from slavery. We say your slate has been wiped clean and that's where we stop. Your slate has been wiped clean. And so I say what that leads me to do is become just like the Judaizers to the Galatian churches and we say, okay, my slate is wiped clean. Now I must begin a life of adding good things to my slate that God will somehow see that he wiped my slate clean. Now he's seeing the things that I've added to my slate, my record, my behavior, my good things, my Bible reading, my church attendance, my witnessing, my evangelism, my all this, my giving, and he will somehow accept me because of all of those things. And that's not the gospel. Indeed, he has redeemed us from the slavery that we were 
uh, in bondage to. He has redeemed us, but there's more to the gospel than just that. Because not only does he take us from something and take something away from us, he also gives us something as well. And so the rest of verse 4 tells us that to those who were under the law, Christ redeemed them so that they might receive adoption as sons. And there is your legal standing. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has given to you. So he redeems us from the bondage of our our sin. We are slaves to sin. He purchases us out of that, and he gives us something that is profound. He adopts us as his son. Again, we have to go back to the first century and understand that if a, a, a wealthy man in this day had no heir that would be the recipient of his inheritance, then he could take a slave and he could adopt that slave and make that slave his son. And that son became not a slave anymore. He was set free and he became a rightful heir to everything that the father had. That's the point of the parable of the, of the prodigal son. There were two sons. Both wanted the inheritance of the father. One asked for the inheritance early, and he went away, and he squandered it. The other stayed and performed well so that he might receive the father's inheritance. The son who went away and squandered came back and uh, repented of his uh, behavior and his attitude, and the father welcomed him in. But the one who was seeking to earn the father's favor stayed out angry while the repentant son went in to be with the father. We have been adopted as sons. We are heirs with Christ. All that is his is ours. And so our position now is that we have been purchased from slavery and we have been given sonship in Christ And let's talk about now um, how that plays out in verse 6. First of all, let me say that I told you last week that we had established a daddy driving school at our house. We have two daughters who have their learner's permit, and they're learning to drive. And uh, it seems like my life is getting shorter every drive that we take. Um, But And I told you that because... Uh, they are trying to prove to the DMV that they are um, able to perform adequately to be declared drivers. And that sometimes we see Christianity as that, that we can somehow perform and present a record that says, I've performed enough to receive these rights and privileges. And Paul is saying, you cannot perform well enough to receive all that God has for you. And that's why he sent Jesus to die for our sins in your place, to purchase you from slavery and to bring you into sonship as his son, adopted by him. Uh, Darren Libby is um, our worship leader, and many of you know that um, they grew a family of three almost faster than anybody that I've ever known. Um, They've adopted three children from various walks of life. Um, They now have two sons and one daughter that were not biologically born to them, but they chose them. They selected those three kids out. They went before a judge and said, we desire these to be our children. Um, They had to do some things. The judge says, these are now your children. And I was present for one of those. And the judge says, don't forget, this is forever. Forever. 
adopted. So all that Darren Libby has belongs now to his three kids, to Warrior, to Polivia, and to Nico. He had no children, and now he has three children that are absolutely his children as much as if they had been born to him and to Crystal. The Haynes family in the same way. They had a child who was theirs. They said, we want this son to be our son. And so they stood before a judge, and that judge said, this child is now your son. This is forever. He is your child. We, in the same way, have been adopted, declared God's sons, heirs, because of what Christ has done for us. And so how does that practically play out? Verse 6 says, because you are sons, something has happened to you. One, you have, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So when people would uh, try to uh, go into God's presence because of their prescribed ritual and sacrificial system where they would enter into, and a priest on their behalf once a year would enter into the Holy of Holies to, to approach God on behalf of the people, what Paul is saying now is that his spirit has been sent into our hearts so we don't have to seek out God's presence physically. His presence is with us by his spirit. And as he is with us by his spirit, it causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. That word cry out is something that is profound. I know the language is, is baby language, Abba. It's like Dada. But it's more than that. The emphasis on the word crying is a calling out when perhaps there's danger, perhaps there's something I don't understand, perhaps there's something going on that I can't make sense of, and we cry out because we're not alone. We are a child of God. We are His, and so we cry out, Abba, Father. It's a cry. It's a call out. So my daughter is attempting to become a driver. And I have entered into her life as the driving spirit. And I sit in the passenger seat and I say, I'm her guardian. I say, go this way and go that way and turn left here. Turn on your signal. Check your mirror. Move over to the other lane. Get to this stop sign. I want you to go left. I don't like to go left. I have to turn across cars. We're going to make all right turns. I'm like, you're not going to make all right turns for the rest of your life. You've got to learn how to go left as well. And so we're driving along with my oldest. I did both of them yesterday. That's why I had to get um, gray hairs cut out of my hair last night. We're driving along, though, yesterday. My oldest daughter is going along. She's just, um, she's just there, and she's safe at the wheel. She knows she's safe at the wheel because anything that comes up that she can't handle, all she's got to do is cry out to Daddy, and Daddy's going to tell her exactly what to do, and then she executes, not because she's trying to earn the right for me to say, hey, stop. I'm going to be there to say what she needs to know because she's my heir. She is my rightful recipient of all that I have. She is mine, and I am hers. And so we're driving along. We're on Dunlawton. We're about to check our mirror and go into that malfunction junction where people are coming off of I-95 and getting off of Dunlawton and whew, it's harrowing for me. 
And so we're doing this. I'm like, okay, turn on your signal, check your mirror, get ready to slide over into the other lane. And as she's getting ready to do this, a truck who is in the other lane, who's supposed to be going straight, decides that, oh yeah, I meant to make a right turn. And so he turns across both lanes in front of her, and she doesn't know what to do. And she says, Daddy! And I say, just hit the brake. She hit the brake, slowed down just a little bit. The idiot went on his way, and we fell in behind him. And so is our walk as a son. That we cry out in those moments, Daddy! And he's right there. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I know there are children in the room here that cannot understand what it is to be a parent. And maybe there are parents in the room that have forgotten what it's like to be a child. And oftentimes when we think of the idea of a father, um, that word father kind of conjures in our minds maybe something that is less than perfect. Sometimes we have fathers who were absent altogether from our lives. Sometimes we have fathers who were functionally absent from our lives. They were around, but they kind of just sat on a chair and didn't do much at all. Sometimes it's a very negative um, understanding of where the father is. He was harsh, vengeful, full of rage. And so to think of the idea of being a son to a father sometimes gets skewed in the world in which we live. But what we have afforded us is a perfectly heavenly father who loves us absolutely and unconditionally and clearly demonstrated that for us in sending his son to die in our place. And when that occurred, an exchange happened and poured on Christ was all of your sin. And all of the fact that you could never live up, all of that, and all that that means and all that that entails was poured out and placed on Christ. And so he received your record, your debt was his. And in the exchange, you received his record by faith as a believer you now received his righteousness. So he died as though you, he had lived your life so that you could one day die as though you had lived his life. A great exchange occurred. But here's the thing. Not all of us in this room are believers yet. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing. Darren's going to come. He's going to play. And um, as we, when we stand to sing at the back of the room, across the back of the room, there are going to be some people, prayer partners, who are wearing a lanyard that says, how can I help? Or may I help you? Something to that effect. Like, here he goes. How can I help? Patrick's going back. Thank you. 
And so here's when we stand to sing. I, I want to I just say to those of you who have never placed your faith in Christ, are uncertain about your walk. I, I don't know. It's been my experience that when we're His, we know we're His. And if we doubt or question that we're His, then it's very important that we resolve that issue. We nail it down. We make certain that we know that we know that we know that we're His. But also in this room, there are people who have, who have allowed the faith, the precious faith that we've been given as Christians to be changed into something that is performance-based and based on our behavior and our ability, where we compare ourselves to others, where we have more contempt for people who are lost because of their behavior than we have compassion on them because they're not living up to the standard whereby which we judge all people because we have fashioned a set of rules and standards in our minds and that is what everyone is judged by. And so I just want to call you to repent of that. Either right where you're sitting or go and grab someone who is across the back and just say, hey, will you pray with me? I need to come back to the understanding that I'm a son of God, an heir, that I'm his, and that my position before him is based completely on what he has done for me, not what I could ever do for him. So two things, either begin your walk today with Jesus, or two, repent of, of adding to the gospel, of trying to... to Change it into something that is different than it was ever intended to be. For we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, so that no one could boast. So Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to respond. God, we pray that you would help us to have the courage to be obedient to you as you call us. By your Spirit, help us to obey you in this moment. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.